Welcome to Wrestling Changed My Life. If you haven't done so yet, give us a star rating and leave us a review. That helps bubble up this podcast to wrestling fans just like you. Now let's get to this episode. Yeah, for years I I would describe that event and, and as you know, I had some blame I wanted to put on the referee and, and so I'd say like, you know, that guy ruined my life and really I'm I'm the one to blame there. You know, I shouldn't have let it be be that close or be in that situation and uh it it changed me. It knocked me down a peg or two. It humbled me and now I'm in a place where I look back on it and I'm okay with it. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. This is your host, Ryan Warner. It's Monday, March 21st, coming to you from Chicago IL. My brother and I got back from Detroit yesterday, absolutely exhausted. The NCAA tournament was amazing, but man, it wears you out. Thank you so much to everyone who came to the happy hour last Thursday that we co-hosted with Stalemates. We'll be doing those more often. And yeah, it was just so great to see everyone. If you came up to say hi, thank you. It means the world to us and just an amazing weekend of wrestling. I can't wait for next year's NCAAs, and I can't wait for the freestyle season to get underway. So let's get to this episode. This is with head coach Matt Storniolo, whose Northwestern Wildcats just finished sixth in the country. They had a national champion, Ryan Deacon. This interview was meant to go live last week, but we got to Detroit. We started seeing friends, started seeing family, and you know, next thing you know, we are caught up in the wrestling. So enjoy this episode with head coach Matt Storniolo. Fan of the week goes to Devin Eller, a Team Illinois wrestler, a young stud coming up in the middle school ranks. Devin, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Last but not least, folks, this episode's presented by our friends at Spartan Combat. The Spartan Combat Nationals are coming up in just a few weeks. Register now at SpartanCombat.com. It's the only tournament I know where you can re- wrestle beach, freestyle Greco folk, and a team duel all in one weekend. It's going down April 8th through the 10th in Jacksonville, Florida. Nice weather, warm weather. Get down there, folks. SpartanCombat.com. And that's it. Let's give it up for Northwestern head coach Matt Storniolo. Matt Storniolo, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. First of all, congrats on the 10 out of 10 qualifiers. That is just incredible to see. You know, this podcast is based in Chicago, so we're all things Illinois. And uh, just congratulations. Amazing job. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
Yeah. Just talk us through the kind of the tournament now that you've had a few days to reflect on, on what it means for you and, and the program. Yeah, I think it's the kind of thing that as you get a little bit more separation from it, you realize just how, how special it was. Um, in the moment, uh, kind of in competitive overdrive and always thinking about what could have been a little bit better. Um, and you know, when the tournament ended, we were in a race to, to get into fourth place and we didn't get there. Um, so I was a little disappointed, a little frustrated, especially because if we hadn't received a team point deduction, we would have finished in that fourth place spot, which uh, some people say, maybe it's a big deal. Maybe it's not, but to me, that, that's a big deal um, to, to come away with the same finish as a school like Ohio state that has so many more resources than we do with <laughs> such a higher budget and, you know, any bell and whistle that you could possibly imagine they have. And for us to be compete, competing at that level, I, well, that's just it. We're competing at that level. And I wanted people to recognize that. I didn't want people to say, Oh, Northwestern was almost the same as Ohio state. Like, no, I wanted to, to beat them. I wanted to be there with them and beat them. So, uh, when it first ended, it was a little frustrated, um, but as, uh, yeah, as time passed and I had a chance to kind of reflect on the weekend and really think about just how awesome the effort was from the guys over, over those two days, it, it feels good. But with that said, that's over, and now the real fun begins. So we haven't, we haven't finished the job yet. All eyes on Detroit, Detroit Rock City. It's going to be awesome. And... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I just love that. That's how competitive you are, though. You're, you got uh, at the time. Was it eight through at the tournament, and the two, uh, two? We had we got nine through, nine, nine through. through at the event, um, and when it all finished out, we never say guaranteed, but figured Yaya Thomas was a lock for in that large bit. Um, mm -hmm. So felt pretty confident when the dust settled at the end of Sunday that we were going to have ten guys qualified. Wow, that is just amazing, and. You know, uh, I grew up watching the Midlands. My mom used to take me for Christmas and, you know, Midlands tournaments is synonymous with Northwestern. So it's just awesome to see the program just build just throughout the throughout the year into where it's at now. Um, I was just looking back on uh, on some of the interviews you've done. And I think back to your interim year and how much different it must be now compared to that. You know, what, what have been the biggest changes just uh, just that you've seen in the program since then to now? Uh, I think the biggest change has been the culture of the program. And that was, that was intentional. Um, and, and uh, we've got 25 guys and every one of them is pulling for, for the one right next to them. And as much as they want to accomplish their individual goals, those team goals are, are equally as important to them. So uh, yeah, I think that that's the biggest change it was just recreating a family like atmosphere here among this team and uh, having 25 guys that are like brothers out there, everybody's working towards a, a common goal, and we have that. And uh, it, just for folks who don't know, when when you when you took the job at Northwestern, you've been there for a long time, and uh, it was kind of like like you said, like you had a lot of doubts throughout the year, and it, it just you weren't sure what the end would look like. And now here you are, you just got an extension this year and, and things are going great. But just for folks who don't know, what were some of the challenges you guys had to go through that first year you became head interim head coach? Oh man, it was, it was a Murphy's law year of, <laughs> of wrestling for, for Northwestern wrestling. for me, um, starting off the, the year, we only had a, a roster of, I want to say we had like 18 guys on the roster 
and we had multiple season ending injuries some career ending injury it was so pretty soon that that 18 able body shrunk down to like seven or eight when you exclude the red shirts because um, I didn't want to I didn't want to pull kids red shirts before they were ready. And there were a lot of guys that were still developing and I wanted to do right by, by the individuals first. Um, and that was scary because I knew that I was in an interim role. I didn't know if I was going to get to keep that job. And um, so, yeah, you have that thought creep in your head. Like maybe I need to go all out and look out for myself, but just didn't feel comfortable doing that. And those guys deserve to, to have an opportunity to develop in a college room and progress and and have the type of college experience that, that they thought they're going to have so we stuck to the plan we kept guys in the red shirts that intended to red shirt and um jason Surtis was going through hell at, at that time and it just seemed like yeah we were getting hit from from every direction and we were going into dual meets with three weight classes open and competing well but it's hard to win a college match when you start down 18 points and uh it was nerve-wracking you, you watch the team grow closer so you know like okay i'm doing some things right but the competitive results just just weren't coming and it was scary uh it was scary going home every night of that season wondering if I was going to get an opportunity to really make this my team and see it through. And when you're in the the depths of that, you know, fighting and clawing through it, what are some things that you look back on that you did that you, that you still replicate if you were in that same situation? Cause a lot of people listening gone through it or going to go through something where they're, they're at that spot. Uh, I think I just kept reminding myself even if it's only for the next six months, do this the right way. Give these guys on the team the experience that they deserve for, for the time while you're here. And that was kind of what I hung my hat on. And thankful that it worked out where I got a chance to continue leading this program and had an opportunity to, to rebuild it uh, in the way that I had in mind. But uh, yeah, that was kind of the, the mantra of the year was you know, give them what they deserve and whatever happens, happens. Just do the right thing by those guys each day. And then over time, it, it all kind of builds up. Um, what you're just looking back now, you know, knowing you had been assistant for, for six years, I believe somewhere in that range and you go into being a head coach. What are some of the things you learn in your first or second year that you just, you really didn't have an appreciation for, didn't realize it was going to be that much of a time suck kind of thing. Uh, I think, one of the things that became apparent really quick was the ripple effect, right? Nothing really happens in singularity. Everything you do is going to have a consequence, whether it's immediate, whether it's an example that you set that's going to come back into play down the road. So just realizing that nothing really happens in a vacuum. As a head coach, when you make a decision, there are going to be repercussions and some that you don't even think about. So it was trying to shift a mindset to where you're almost thinking two, three moves in advance. Like, okay, if I decide to do this with an athlete, what's this going to mean for the next athlete that comes along and wants that same thing? Or um, it, it's kind of hard to even think about in, in general terms like this. But that was that was one of them, was mm -hmm. that yeah, nothing happens in a vacuum. The other thing was don't ever get too comfortable because 
just when you think like things are even keel, something's going to change. Something's going to blow up, whether it's coach leaving, whether it's an athlete leaving or recruit, you know, uh, there's just so much that's beyond your control. And if you try to make it all within your control, you're going to drive yourself crazy. Um, so it, it's kind of just to expect the unexpected because it's going to happen. <laughs> it's uh, I can't even imagine when you're dealing with, you know, young people and uh, you know, these, these student athletes, you know, what's going on and you multiply that by the, by the recruiting and then by another layer that's, that's only grown is the RTCs. And um, I'm sure that's why someone like you surrounds themselves with, you know, someone as legendary as Andrew, how, how did he come into your, into your circle? Uh, Andrew was a reference from Jake Herbert. Uh, Jake was my first call. I wanted to get Jake to come back to Northwestern. Um, most decorated wrestler to ever come through this way. Um, and a longtime best friend. So it was, it was no brainer. Jake Herbert was the guy I wanted. So I reached out to Jake and said, come on, let's make this happen. And Jake said like, ah, I just bought a house I'm in Michigan married like uh not or getting getting ready to get married and uh had career uh aspirations that were beyond the sport so that didn't work out but he said you know you should you should reach out to andrew house so gave andrew a call it seemed like there was a little bit of uncertainty with the oklahoma pro program so right place right time to get andrew on board and then it kind of uh snowballed from there um talked to cody brewer Cody originally uh, had his mind made up. Actually, no. Talked to him. There was interest. We were lining up a visit for him to come out. During that time, he decided he was going to go to Penn State, join the Nittany Lion Wrestling Club, uh, and train down there. And so it kind of sent him a slight – I was trying to implant a little thought in his head and told him, uh, hey, like, that's what you want to do. Good luck to you. If you ever want an opportunity to build your resume, um, start thinking about your career and be more than a, a workout partner, then give us a look. Love to have you. And a couple of weeks later, found out that he was rethinking things and he was ready to jump on board. So uh, really fortuitous how uh, it all kind of came together there. Um, and then had that core initial staff and from there uh, start to, to build it, build it my way. Yeah. And it's uh it's just cool to see someone who was preparing to be a head coach and finally get to implement those, those changes. Just going back to your, your first sentence coach at old dominion. What was, uh, what, what was that like? And what were some of the big takeaways from, from your time out there under coach Martin? Man, I, I, I loved my time at old dominion and it breaks my heart that that program um, is no longer with us. Uh, but I, I think Old Dominion was, was the perfect place for me to start off. Um, the way my senior year ended at the NCAA tournament, I was, I was crushed. I was devastated. I was depressed. It changed me as a person for a long time. Um, and kind of really that, I, that big of an impact. Yeah, it was, it was tough at the time. I thought that, uh, my life was ruined. Like that was 18 years. No, that was 20. No, it was 18 years. Yeah. 18 years of work, 17 years of work, um, to come up short 
right? The, the goal was to win a national title. And I didn't do that. It was within, it was within my reach. I had the ability, the potential to do it. Um, I had the seed to do it. Every, everything was lining up for me to, to win a national title. And I didn't get it done. And the way it happened to probably made it a little bit harder to swallow. Um, but uh, yeah, for years, I, I would describe that event and, and as you know, I had some blame I wanted to put on the referee. And, and so I'd say like, you know, that guy ruined my life and really I'm, I'm the one to blame there. You know, I shouldn't have let it be, be that close or be in that situation. And uh, it, it changed me. It knocked me down a peg or two. It humbled me. And now I'm in a place where I look back on it and I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm glad it happened. I think it made me a better person, um, a more grounded person. And it put me on the right path to get where I am today. Um, if I don't start off at Old Dominion, I probably don't leave a job after two years to come to Northwestern and then be in the right place, right time to take over a, a Big Ten program. Um, so kind of got off on a tangent there. Um, but no, I think it's old- a, yeah, no, I, I'm fascinated by, by those moments because it's like those kind of rock bottom moments are where these crucial turning points are, are made. And so that's, you know, I, I was hoping you'd go there and I didn't know if you would, but you I mean, so that that's kind of how you left off college after being a two-time all American. And then did you go right into ODU after that? Yeah, right into o- ODU. I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Originally I was thinking I wanted to possibly stick around uh, Oklahoma and be a grad assistant. Um, after giving a little bit more thought, decided like, no, I, I need to get out of here. I need to reset. And a lot of that was just being depressed after senior year of, of NCAAs. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I called Kerry McCoy. He had an assistant job opened up at Stanford. Never got a call back. Um, and uh, I, called, uh, I called up Purdue. They had an assistant job opened up. I think uh, that's when Glenn Lanham was, was heading out that way and got a call back saying like, hey, we've already got our guy and just kind of gave up on, on the job hunt. Um, and then I, I got a call from Lee Pritz one day saying, hey, I'm leaving Old Dominion, going back to Mizzou. We've got a good thing going on down here. Uh, I think you should talk to Steve Martin. So that's how it started. Talk to Steve Martin. Um, and uh, I think that was the perfect place for me to, to start. I uh, had a really strong bond with, with the kids that were at ODU and kids. Like I, I was 23 years old. There were guys <laughs> on that team that I was a year older than when, when I was going in there. So they, they felt like little brothers to me and they were a group that I could relate to. Um, now, yeah, I came from, from Oklahoma, so I came from a bigger program, but growing up, I always kind of felt like the kid that was overlooked. Um, you know, I was starting off in, in middle school and in elementary school is, oh, you're, you're really good, but you're never going to be as good as, you know, some kids from the local high schools and the Stassi brothers or Brian Romsberg was the big, big wrestler, you know, better than them, a little, little older than them. You're never going to be as good as Romsberg. And, and it was like each level I went to, I got better but seemed like I never got the credit that I thought I deserved. I always felt like I was overlooked. Um, going into college, 
didn't have real big scholarship offers coming out, but was ranked third in the country, beat the guy ranked number one in the country. So I always kind of felt like, like I was discounted a little bit for some of my accomplishments. And generally the kids at, at Old Dominion were, were similar. There was a tough group of kids. Uh, it was a tough team. We were top 20 in the dual meet rankings my first year out there. We finished top 20 in the NCAA my second year out there. Um, but they were just a, a group of kids that I could really relate to. A little rough around the edges, um, probably a little undervalued. And, but they, they wanted to scrap and wanted to work hard. And then Steve Martin was was a good first boss. A um, little bit different of personality from your, your average wrestler, wrestling coach. And with Stevie, it was as long as you got your job done and you're good at it, nothing else mattered. So there are days I showed up in pajamas to the office and you know, I wouldn't do it now, but when back then I thought like, ah, this isn't a big deal. And Stevie was cool with all of it. So I'm thankful that he gave me that opportunity and that it, like a lot of other things, put me on the path to, to be in a great place today. Yeah. And it's like, uh, just a couple of things I want to go back on. When you look at the run you had there, was it your first year or second year when, uh, was it Ryan Williams went all the way to the finals? That, that was my second year. My man, Ryan Prater, he had to do him dirty like that. He took out Kellen Russell and then that was the next round. You guys wrestled Prater. If that's, if yep. that's right. Yes. Yes, we did. Yeah, we yep. did. We had him pinned early and Kenny Ritchie didn't want to slap the mat and it got a little hairy there at the end, but pulled it out. <laughs> was that a, I mean, you know, going into that and, you know, seeing what's happened and you've coached guys like Sertzis, Welch, McMullen. I mean, where does that one rank in terms of runs down in, in uh, late March in, uh, in the all-time bank for you? Oh, that's, that's a special one, right? That was first national finalist and, and a kid that, yeah, never, never really got to do it at that stage. And then all of a sudden, bam. Um, and that one's, it, it means, it means a lot because yeah, it was the first. And then, um, Ryan had, he had a rough year that year. Um, he was going through a tough breakup. I can remember, I hope this doesn't embarrass him too much. His girlfriend broke up with her like middle of the season. He's upset. I take him out to dinner one night, like just trying to talk with them. He's crying or at a restaurant. He's crying at the dinner table. Like we're having some heart to hearts and, uh, just trying to get him, get him in the right mindset to, to close out that year. Then seeds come out and he got hosed, which I mean, it's kind of, hot topic right now right yes it is what the (laughs) hell are they doing what are they doing we'll talk about it yeah ryan ryan should have been a four or five seed comes out as like an eight or nine seed and you're looking at bracket on like this it just isn't fair but then look at what happens prater upsets russell he's got a great path to the final and you could just see everything lining up throughout the tournament um and it was exciting right and then part of that is me living vicariously through through Willie. Um, I didn't have that standout performance my senior year that I was supposed to have. So watching Ryan progress and uh, put together such a, a special tournament and make it to the finals from a school like Old Dominion, a guy that took his highest finish at the PEI AA tournament was fifth to then be a, a national finalist was was an awesome experience. Wow. Yeah, that's got to be 
pretty amazing to witness and especially to be there for. Now, when you were coaching at Old Dominion, did, did you know that you want to be a head coach like as the ultimate goal or were you just trying to figure your life out? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that goes back into the competitive piece. It's like, okay, if I'm going to do something, I want to I want to reach a high level at it. And I knew there'd be some, you have to climb some, some rungs on the ladder there, but uh, I don't think it was a really focused thought, but yeah, I think the, the idea once you get into coaching is okay, let's, let's see how this goes. And maybe someday I get an opportunity to, to climb the ladder and take over a program of, of my own. Yeah. And I, the reason I was asking was some guys it's, you know, they go from that super competitive life of a you know wrestler where it's a selfish world to be in coaching where it's a selfless world. And I wondered if, if that was a challenge you wrestled with, or if it was something that came naturally. Yeah. It, again, I had such a, a good bond with the group of wrestlers at old dominion that it made that transition really easy. Um, I also think being in that depressive state made it easier to be more selfless. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to do things that made me feel like a better person that, that gave me value as a, as a person and not just a wrestler. Um, so coaching was a pretty easy transition. Yeah. Well, it's a, uh, it, it's clear you found your calling just seeing what's, what's happened over the years. And you've mentioned you're from Pennsylvania and uh, I know you were state champ as a senior and the PIAAs are going on right now. I'm just curious though, what kind of a, a different like culture shock was it going from a private school to a public school your senior year? Uh, really, I think the culture shock was probably the, the other way around was when I went from eighth grade to ninth grade, because I was a public school kid. Then I transferred to this fancy private school with all these rich kids and I'm not from a <laughs> rich family. And, uh, that was a little bit different of a world. Um, but simulated pretty well, uh, by the time senior year, senior year rolled around and it was actually end of my junior year is, is when okay. I, um, I was, I was stoked about it. Like I would go to the prep national tournament and then a week or two later, me and a couple of buddies, we would go to the PIAA tournament and watch it. Um, and that was the event, right? watching that after coming from prep nationals was just like, man, um, I'm at the JV tournament. Like this is, this is where I want to be. So when I finally had that opportunity, it was, it was awesome. Um, and then like you go from the tough private school to state college area high school, which is one of the best public schools in, in the state, but compared to the Haverford school, I was like, man, this is easy. Like I know <laughs> stuff that my teachers don't even know. And, um, girls in class again like man this is great and then i was wrestling in PIAAs, and so it was uh i wouldn't really say there was any culture shock there it was all excitement and i was ready to go and so when you went there initially did you go there to wrestle or was there like an academic well, of opportunity of course of course i didn't go there to wrestle because that's not allowed um <laughs> but uh i my sister was going to penn state already uh so there was an opportunity to get the family back closer together. Um, my mom had a, an opportunity to uh, relocate and, and had a job lined up. So No, I'm sorry. I meant when you went to the private school from eighth grade to ninth grade. How did that oh, end up? If you were grade. public school all the way around, how did that? What yeah, was that so I, I started wrestling at, at a club called Team Renegade, uh, my seventh 
great year, which Team Renegade was an offshoot of Team Foxcatcher. There used to be a youth program with Foxcatcher, and then um, they got kicked off. They formed their own group, Team Renegade, led by Dale Bonzel. And uh, two coaches were Dale Bonzel and, uh, and Coach Kennett. And Coach Kennett, uh, he, um, he was a head coach at Haverford School. So it, it kind of worked out where one day after practice, they're like, hey, what do you think about maybe applying to go to school here? And okay, applied, got in, and that's how it that's how that one happened. Wow. It's uh there's a story. I'm doing a an audio documentary now on a, a wrestler from the 90s, Tony Davis, and he public schools his whole life and then went to Mount Carmel during high school mm-hmm. and like he talks about just the shift and uh you know it was all boys uniform uh they weren't living there like I'm maybe you were actually living there no no same no. thing commuting okay. yeah yeah but uh it's just always interesting to ask kids that because you know that's it. there's a lot of wrestlers that go through that and uh if you have a bit from the private world the whole way up it can be interesting yeah yeah it's a little different you had your they call them lifers right you had your lifers because they were there from kindergarten up through through high school um and there's another kid that transferred in same year as me uh that from the same club so i kind of had a a built-in buddy and when you're on a team it's it's a little bit easier to to make those transitions because you have your like your your built-in mandatory friend group that helps pull you through it yeah and your youth team was crazy the uh you were with herbert you were with mcknight uh, Coleman Scott, like were these guys all on like your youth club at the same time, or they've come through that? Right. Different? So that that was the angry fish, um, and that was that was high school. High school. So okay. team, team Renegade was outside of Philadelphia. Um, angry fish was outside of Pittsburgh, and I was I did not attend many angry fish workouts. Like I wasn't like that core group of guys. Um, I was like the the gun for hire that shared a similar approach and mentality to the other guys on the team and the coaches and they kind of adopted me um and so when they would go on trips they'd ask me if i wanted to go with them i'd go with them i'd go stay with ty Moore in the summer for a couple of weeks or stay with marky mcknight and go to some workouts um but i probably did more on the social and with those guys than i did like the practicing end we competed i competed with them more and hung out with them more than actually trained with them. But Phil Davis, Phil Davis was the same way. Like Phil Davis was an angry fish, but Phil lived in Harrisburg. Um, so same, same type of idea. Would work out with them occasionally in the summertime. Wasn't like in that core group, but just as much a, a fish as, as the other guys. Got it. Now it's uh, some legendary names and Phil's been on the podcast. Uh, we love and uh, Jake Herbert, all those guys. I mean, it's uh, some of your some of the people you've crossed paths with are some of our favorite interviews. And as we shift to, to back to current events, NCAA brackets came out. There's a, there's a Twitter uproar right now on a, on a number of things. You know, I'm not like in the weeds on what determines the seeds. And, and I don't know every conference. I follow the big 10 pretty closely, but I mean, if there is a, if there is something to gripe over, like what's the, uh, the current state of things in your, your opinion with the seeding? I think it's a bad process. Now, I, I, part of me understands why there needs to be a formula. I guess you, at least I, I think I understand it. I, I'm hoping the reason is to put more emphasis on the season so that guys are competing and 
earning enough, hitting enough matches to earn a, an RPI, right? So the guys aren't just coming to the tournament after wrestling a few matches, riding that ranking throughout the year and getting a good seat. Um, my issue with it is, I have a few issues with it. One, like, who are you really hurting when you, you give somebody a lower seed than they deserve? Are you hurting that individual? In some cases, yeah. In a lot of cases, you're hurting the guy that earned that mediocre seed that they bump into more than you're hurting that individual. Um, another big gripe with it is just the coaches panel rankings. They're ridiculous. Coaches don't do the work and I don't blame them busy enough. And especially after a conference tournament to come back and their coaches that don't get back until an hour or two before the rankings are due, there's no way that they can put the time and energy into those rankings that they deserve. The other thing is there's a bias. There's a bias for your own athletes, but then for your conference. And don't think that that doesn't come into play for allocations when you get down to the nitty gritty and you're ranking 25 through 33 and all these guys could be in there because they've all beat someone and beat each other. And you're left with those last few guys. Why would you not throw in a guy from your own conference to try to earn another allocation? And then maybe one of your guys can steal it or gives you a little bit of a cushion. So I just think the coaches rankings are, they're crap. They're terrible. I mean, we, we can go to one, 141 and you've got a guy like Frankie Talshahar who just beat Phileas twice the last two weeks of the season beat Zargo in the duel and at Big Ten's ranked below like open a book look at a result get it right right, right. and the NCA knows that but they don't want to figure it out it's more work for the NCA and I'm a little heated about this because it kind of came up earlier today on Twitter but yeah I feel like the NCA just wants to they have a, they have a money-making product. And so that's good. And they're not doing the right things to ensure the integrity of the event. And whether that's people predetermining results of matches before they happen, or that whether that's not having a fair or accurate ranking system, or even things like making sure that they get the right calls at the NCAA tournament, how hard would it be to put a camera on every score, uh, every scoreboard, tripod so that you have opposing views on uh on every mat and that's a suggestion that i've made to the ncaa i doubt they're going to have it this year mm -hmm. but it's it's an injustice to to the athletes and the coaches who work hard that's that's how i feel you hit a lot of things there that i've i've have a legitimate interest in not for so much from like the tmz aspect but just like legitimately asking what's going on with it so like the, the coach is ranking that impacts what the seating or the like the wild card allocations. Everything you're at large it, allocations for the conference, um, at large bids, and also your seats. Really? See, I was I was uh, looking at you know looking at this yesterday because the seats you know are pretty confusing at a you know a number of situations, but the committee is made up of it looks like five people, and then they base the seatings off of the coaches' rankings. There's a formula to it. So coaches ranking, and I have it written down here. So here we go. Got it right here. So uh, head, head wins is 25% of the criteria. Quality wins, so wins over competitors that make it into the event. That's 20%. 15% of it is the coaches ranking. 10% common opponents, 10% conference uh, placement, and then 10% winning percentage. So, you know, a couple of those things are, are uh, in RPI. RPI is in there as well. Um, 
some of those things are redundant. Like winning percentage is already reflected in your RPI. Mm -hmm. Why do you have that in there? Plus winning percentage shouldn't really mean all that much. You can't compare a big 10 wrestlers season of work to a pac 12 wrestlers or a SoCon wrestlers. They're not the same. And so you're going to get skewed results when you, when you take that into account, I don't think winning percentage should be in there at all. Mm -hmm. And if it is do it as part of the RPI where it takes into account strength of schedule, but get that out of there. And is it true that losses don't impact the seed at all? No, it, that's not true. And this is, they impact it because they're going to impact it in your winning percentage in your RPI, but we're, it, and some of this is a mystery to me. And some of it's info that I've gathered from people on the committee. Um, losses do matter, but it matters who they're to. And one thing that's really frustrating, we ran into this, uh, it would have been Ryan Deacon's freshman year. Um, uh, Oliver from Central Michigan gets seated above us because he beat us in November at the Michigan State Open. But the talent of his year, he lost to not everybody. That's an exaggeration, but he lost to some pretty subpar competitors. And when talking to somebody that was on the seating committee about it, he said, well, he had a head to head went over Ryan and they're right next to each other. I said like, okay, so you're better off losing to wrestlers that are just really, really bad than somebody that's really close to you because those really bad losses are so bad that they just get thrown out. And then a loss to somebody close to you just kills you. So that's where you can say losses don't matter. Got it. Okay. And, and obviously this all dovetails into the, to the uh, medical forfeit situation. It seems to be more pronounced in the big 10. Is that fair? And if so, why do you think that is? I'm just, cause it looks, it's concerning for everyone. And I don't know what came here on it, it. It's concerning. Um, I, I've got mixed emotions on it. Uh, I, I, don't know what the what the fix is, but yeah, it, it's an issue. It, anytime you've got two forfeits in your conference finals, it's embarrassing. That's a bad look. And I'm pretty sure that's not what Dan Gable would call Iowa style. Um, that's an issue. Um, guys that forfeit for seating purposes. And I think it happened to us at 133 pounds. We lost a close match to Rayvon Foley at, at the dual meet. Michigan State didn't wrestle him against us. Kids walking around perfectly okay. He's eating a burrito, you know, before the round, like looks happy, looks healthy. But people protect things. And so that's how that that's... works with that situation. That's crazy. See, I, I never really knew what people meant when they said, you know, they're doing it for seating. So Rayvon beats you in the duel. If you're if you beat him there, we beat gonna... him there. We we get the eight seed at NCAs. He's the 10th seed. And so him forfeiting, there's no penalty to that. There's no penalty to it. Now, I don't know how I feel about medical forfeits counting as losses, because now I think you're putting coaches and athletes in potentially precarious situation where a kid is hurt and maybe he shouldn't wrestle, but now there's pressure to do so. Um, it's such a fine it, line, right? Because everyone can agree. Like, is, if someone's actually hurt, like just from watching on the TV, Kemmerer's shoulder pops out. The guy was in grimacing pain. We know he's hurt. Okay, but there's a lot of people where that's not the case. And just remember like when we had the phantom injury times and they put in the rule, if you're injured, you got to give up a point. It, it seemed to have yeah, stopped this. Choice. Right. Right. So I don't know what the answer is, but man, it's so weird. It's such a crazy thing. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's that 
yeah, I, the, the suggestion that I like the most, now it wouldn't help a guy like Cameron that's trying to gut it out, uh, is have there be like a mandatory suspension, right? If, if you're that hurt that you can't compete, that you can't compete for 10 days. Mm. And that takes care of the problem right there, yeah. right? C- people aren't going to protect a seed and miss the NCAA tournament because, yeah, like when there's no point in the seed then. Um, Got it. It, it doesn't, it, yeah, it, it helps you at tournaments too, regular season tournaments where you have guys that beat somebody on the front side of the bracket and then don't wrestle them on the back side of the bracket. See that in Vegas, you see it at Midland, oh. Southern Scalfall, you see a lot of places. They get that win and they just want to hold on to it. Um, so I think it would help in situations like that because coaches aren't going to have their guy miss you know, one, maybe two, three duels because they want to hang on to a seed. It's just the, I mean, that's just the weakest thing I've ever heard that you, yeah, get the Vegas term. You beat someone on the front side. You're not going to wrestle again the back side because of the seed thing. It's like, I get it, but man, that is, that's, uh, that's unwrestling. Like, you know, to have to, for, to this, to have this happen. And, uh, it's just, it's just crazy because the product's so good right now. The wrestling is so good. And when it's done right, it's awesome. And, uh, the dual meets are awesome. Freestyle's great. You know, so the product's never been better. Kids have never been better. And it just sucks that we're still talking about it because there were so many great matches this weekend. But man, it was just such a weird thing to see two forfeits of the finals. It's- yeah, it's a, it's a black eye on the sport. Yeah, it is. Um, and then the last thing is, how similar is this to this prearranged forfeit situation? That's even weirder. That it's not weird. It's it's a lot of words. Um, I wouldn't call it weird but it's, it's cheating. It lacks, there's zero integrity to that. And I understand sometimes you're put in positions where you're trying to do right by your kids, but like, is that really doing right by your kids, teaching them to cheat, teaching them to to work the system instead of earn it. And that's what it is. Um, Anytime that you yeah, you know the result before you go out there. And and we're not talking about, I'm not talking about in a tournament, right? You've got two guys in a tournament, one guy's hurt, and there's a reason to injury default or to go out there and start it and stop it. And I can give you an example of when I feel like it's acceptable. When I was an assistant coach here, uh, we had a kid, Alex Polizzi. At the Big Ten tournament, he's working out the day before. He tears some cartilage in his knee, it flips, and we cannot get his knee to unlock. Take him to the hospital, they're shooting syringes full of saline in there, trying to get it to loosen up, and cannot get this thing to unlock. Whoa. So I went to the head coach at the time, I said, listen, I think we should start the first match, stop it, injury default. If we won that first match, it didn't matter. We still either had to win our quarterfinal or win the wrestle back if we lost to place. If we lost that first match, we get put into the backside of the bracket where there's a bye, slide to that next round to the blood round of the big tens. And if we won, we qualified. So I said, he's hurt, go out there, we take the loss, put it all into this next match. And we did it, it worked out. Alex beats, uh, beats McCall from Wisconsin. We qualify for the tournament, he has to pull out. There is a need for that. And we were, the bracket was designed where that match had to happen. Um, And that guy was going to get a win either way. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference when you 
when you concoct a match, right? When it's an extra match, that's not a match that's slated. It's not a match at a tournament. It's not a match that has to happen in a bracket. You design that for no other reason than to manufacture a result. And that is cheating at its simplest form. Point shaving. Nobody will convince point shaving. me. I'm... Yes. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's worried. Like a point shaving, like you're not even determining, like you're not changing the result. You're determining the differential of the score. But for yeah. that, like, yeah, that's just, and it, it's mind boggling that the NCAA just sits back and they're like, ah, you know, maybe the committee will take that into account. <laughs> It's uh, it is crazy. And for folks who don't know, what we're talking about it's much too deep a topic to go into now. But basically, there have been some open tournaments where coaches agree to who's going to forfeit to who, so wrestlers can get a certain match minimum. Which the crazy thing is that we're wrestling fewer matches now than we ever have, and that we're forfeiting to get to the match totals. It's bizarro. Um, I'm off my soapbox because I love wrestling. There's so much right going on, but it's like there's some pretty glaring things that could be fixed just with some rules and let's just, let's see something happen. You know, it's like a uh, freaking the IOC had to kick us out of the Olympics to, to tear down Fila and rebuild it. And uh, it's like, we need something like that to, to get a few of these rules shaken out so we can go back to the business of just good wrestling. Preach. Right. Um, well, coach, I know it's, it's one of the craziest eight week periods for or eight day periods for you. Uh, maybe seven days left till NCA. So I'm always curious and we'll just sign off with this. When does a team, you know, like Northwestern, do you roll into Detroit? You going in Monday, Tuesday? Like, what did like the days leading up to when we see you guys on TV look like? Yeah, so Tuesday. Um, and that's, I know some schools get out there a little bit early. I think that just makes for a really long travel. Um, so, yeah, we leave Tuesday, two days out. We'll work out here in our own facility before we take off. Probably get a 10 o'clock workout in, hit the road around 1230, get to, uh, get to Detroit, settle in, get a workout in the arena on Wednesday morning and give the guys their, their pump up talk on, on Wednesday night. And awesome. Yeah. Say a prayer, put your head between your knees, see what happens. <laughs> and weigh-ins Thursday morning. Um, you guys are probably, did you all the teams get up Thursday morning to get the final pounds off or does some, some guys have it done the night before? Everybody's a little bit different. Um, for, for the NCAA tournament, we try to get our guys to, to wake up on weight or close to weight. Um, but, uh, and then this year will be a little bit different for everybody. We're used to one hour weigh-ins on day two and day three, and we're, we're two hour weigh-in. Wow. So it'll be, uh, it's good. It's good for the competitors. I think you're gonna have a better product. Awesome. Well, we will be watching attently and, uh, just best of luck to you. It's so great to have you on the show and, uh, you're welcome back anytime coach. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to Wrestling Changed My Life. This episode was brought to you by Spartan Combat. You can register now for the Spartan Nationals taking place April 8th through the 10th at SpartanCombat.com. To keep up with Wrestling Changed My Life on social media, follow us on Instagram at Wrestling Changed My Life. You can also go to WrestlingChangedMyLife.com for all past episodes. That's it, and we'll see you next time.